This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast brought to you by the AM Campaign. I'm your host, Michael Ware. So happy to be with you here in 2020. Now listen, if you listened to the last episode, you might be wondering why it's been so long. Uh, I I made uh, a, a commitment that... Uh, there would be a episode before the uh, 2019 was out with the state of the race update, and I did not meet that commitment. And so, for those of you who were waiting for that, I, I apologize. Let me try to make up for it a little bit by saying that it was in your interest, which is to say, I could have recorded a couple days after Christmas. Here's what I knew first. The fourth quarter fundraising deadlines were obviously at the end of the year. I wanted to see those those numbers. Those numbers were going to be significant sort of data points as we look at the race. Uh, number two, I wanted to see some more early state polling. I had a sense that some polling was going to come out early in January, but we had gone for weeks with pretty sparse data to go off of. So to do a state of the race update at the end of December, when really December didn't see other than some folks dropping out and those, we we just needed more information. Uh, We we have that now. And speaking of dropouts, we have those too. As I'm recording now, just an hour ago, Senator Cory Booker announced that he was dropping out Marianne Williamson announced last week that she was dropping out. So the, the, the race is, is in some ways consolidating. If you bring in Tom Steyer and Bloomberg in particular, in some ways there are some new elements that are complicating factors. Uh, so the, the race is simplifying in some ways, but we see shadows <laughs> looming over over the race, which suggests that uh, it may not be as, as clear as you might otherwise think. All right, this is the State of the Race episode. We've done one of these uh, thus far, and it really provides an opportunity. You know, every episode of the Faith 2020 podcast, typically I'm interviewing guests. I'm providing recaps of news and events and providing analysis of what the campaigns and candidates are doing, trying to get inside of the candidate's head and the the head of the folks running the campaigns. The State of the Race episode is an opportunity for me to step back and and be straight with you about my opinion, about how this all adds up, about who's in a strong position uh, to to win the Democratic nomination. And so uh, that's what we're going to do in this episode. Uh, I'll, I'll say I'm only going to be covering candidates who have made the January debate stage or who have shown particular polling promise. So basically, that means eight candidates. I I put in Tom Steyer, Bloomberg, and Andrew Yang uh, into into the rankings in in addition to uh, the senators and the the elected uh, uh, officials and and, and vice president. Uh, the, The other thing I'd say is, these are predictions. 
based on the state of the race as it currently is, with some attempt to sort of prognosticate and sort of see into the future. I think one important thing to note is all the campaigns are looking at the same set of data and they have additional you know data and inputs that are uh that only they have and making adjustments to try and change the state of the race and so we'll probably do another one of these if not before Iowa then right after Iowa uh and New Hampshire and I'm I'm sure it will be different then uh but this is sort of a say the race from here where we're sitting uh in in January all right those caveats uh, and uh, sort of housekeeping notes being done with. When we get back after this first break, I'll start from the bottom, working our way to the top of the, the state of the race, who is most likely to win the Democratic nomination. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. We're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. Let's let's start again as a refresher. I am not going to be considering in these rankings candidates who have not made the debate stage and also have not shown really shown up in the polls. Uh, Obviously, if any additional candidates sort of break through, uh, if there is that Deval Patrick surge that I've had my eye out for, then perhaps we'll uh, uh, new candidates will enter the rankings. But this is uh, really for the top eight candidates. Now, for those of you who listen to the podcast, number eight on the list is not going to be a surprise to you as well as I think of him, and as much as I think he's contributed to the race, Andrew Yang, I think, is at the bottom of the pack. And there are a few reasons for that. One is he is a candidate who is polling in the single digits despite no one daring to say anything negative about him. Uh, None of his opponents have critiqued him. They've actually treated him with great respect on the debate stage. And so he's been probably treated as presidential material more than he could have hoped for, I, I, I'd say, <laughs> uh, up to this point. And yet, I think he has a, a really low ceiling for as much as he's contributed to this race. For the amount of money he's been able to raise, he's certainly going to be able to fund an operation, run some ads. It's just unclear to me what viable pathway he has for people to select him as the person they believe should go up against Donald Trump against the other candidates running. Really, honestly, it's not clear what he could do that would sort of suggest that he's ready to be president. I think, as I've said before on this podcast, he has the most thievery-worthy campaign in the race. I think candidates have... And especially if he drops out, you're going to see candidates in this race, also in the future, really looking to to take and appropriate elements of what he's done in this campaign. I think Andrew Yang should be applauded. He has not made a fool of himself. He is actually, unlike several other sort of politicians who people thought, gosh, they, they could be president who got in this race and I think left this race in in a place where they did damage to their career and to their reputation. 
Andrew Yang has only increased his reputation. I think he's going to be someone who presidents are going to call on uh, for advice. I think he's someone who's going to be able to have some kind of role in an administration if he wants one, even if it's, as I've suggested before, some kind of running a council on 21st century economics or um, how to uh, confronting the challenge of automation for American workers or even some kind of uh, blue ribbon commission on uh, UBI. I think there's uh, there are, there are ways forward for him, and if he decides that he actually wants to sort of position himself to run for president, he's going to have the ability to do that. We could see a Yang campaign uh, in the future that I think is more viable. What he has done has impacted the race significantly, and, and that's that's a win. What he's not going to do is is win the nomination. I, I don't think, and I, I would be happy to have egg on my face uh, on that one. Number seven is Tom Steyer. And I'll be honest, I had trouble ordering uh, these next three. I put Tom Steyer uh, below some of the other candidates who we'll, we'll get to for a couple of reasons. Actually, let's just, let's just do this. I have Tom Steyer at seven and Mike Bloomberg at six. And I think it might be most helpful to talk about both of them sort of side by side. If it's going to be possible to buy this nomination, then Mike Bloomberg's going to buy it. Uh, Mike Bloomberg seems to have more financial resources uh, towards this. Uh, I'm Somewhat tempted to put Tom Steyer ahead of Bloomberg because Steyer could potentially have a top three or top four finish uh, in in some of these early states where Bloomberg is not 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 making a go for it. I, I basically settled on the idea that you know, both of these candidates are seeking to uh, win the nomination through overwhelming financial force. And if that's the pathway that's going to be taken, Bloomberg is going to win it. Also, Bloomberg does have the benefit, with some caveats, of being an elected official and having served in government in some capacity running our largest city as, as mayor of New York. Uh, you know, the downside of that is that he, he's been a Republican. You know, in a, in a normal race, uh, you know, someone who was elected to office uh, – uh, not as a Democrat, uh, you know that that would be a that would be an issue in a campaign. But again, if Bloomberg is going to win, it's because he's able to he's able to buy the nomination, which you know I'll say is not going to be a great message going up against Donald Trump. It's not going to be like a you know let's you know strengthen democratic institutions and you know reestablish democratic norms uh, by. You know, electing a guy who jumped in the race, you know, basically in March <laughs> uh, because he was concerned that if he didn't spend his hundreds of millions of dollars that Donald Trump might win. Like, I just don't think that's going to be as effective a message as Bloomberg thinks it uh, will be. And so uh, Tom Sire has a great team around him. He has, he has some real political staffers. 
he's he's been it's not like he's a political neophyte he's he's been funding important work uh i just think it's clear similar to yang this is a guy who just doesn't have business being president he might have business meeting with a president in the oval office providing advice uh, certainly leading politically but but just because you have political ideas doesn't mean that uh, you're you're ready to be president, and so uh, that's six and seven. Uh, maybe they'll be able to buy their way to the nomination, but I think that there are sort of disincentives and reasons why voters won't sort of reward that. Number five is Amy Klobuchar, and I'll I'll tell you th- this is the part of the say the race where. I see a, a real viable pathway for Klobuchar in a way that, you know, is very, very close in likelihood to the path for Buttigieg, even though, you know, their polling histories are, Buttigieg clearly has, has polled better so far than Amy Klobuchar. But Amy Klobuchar, if she's able to get a top three finish in Iowa, frankly, if the Des Moines Register poll out this month had shown Amy Klobuchar in mid-double digits, I'd probably have her ranked higher. Unfortunately for her campaign, it showed absolutely no movement from the November Des Moines Register poll to uh, to the present, even with something of a growing narrative that she was gaining steam uh, that, that wasn't borne out in the Des Moines Register poll. We'll have to see if other early state polls... Uh, uh, show differently, but the Des Moines Register poll is the is the gold standard, and I, I don't think there's any reason to distrust it. But that being said, I I still think that there's a there's more than enough precedent for polling to change. I think there's more than enough precedent for Iowa to reward someone who's been dedicated to the state, who spent a great deal of time in the state, and who has entrusted her political fortunes uh, to the state. And so the pathway for Amy Klobuchar, as I've been you know clear on the show, is that she continues to steadily build you know, momentum and steadily increase and improve her debate performance to the point where she breaks at just the right moment. And now we're getting to those weeks where like this has to be this has to be the moment. I think the debate this week is more important for Amy Klobuchar than anyone else uh, in terms of what they have riding on on this debate. I think she has shown that she can improve on her debate performances. I think this debate, she needs something that she could ride uh, through the Iowa caucus. And, and then a lot of things are possible for her. If Amy Klobuchar finishes top three in Iowa, uh, that might provide voters to give her another look. And it's going to be a brutal, you know, month for not just Joe Biden, but I think for for the top four candidates, really. And there's a chance that it's Klobuchar who sort of comes through this relatively unscathed at just the right moment. And so uh, Amy Klobuchar is number five. You know, she's raised a bit of money, but, you know, her fundraising numbers have not blown anyone away, though she's been able to meet the uh, the debate 
you know, metrics pretty, pretty easily. You know, her polling has always been enough, again, to get her into the debates, but haven't seen any big spikes. Uh, And so that's why I have her in in number five. Again, if, if she had been able to show top two, top three, uh, in Iowa or any other state, of course, uh, I'd be looking at her a bit differently, but she's she's got to be number five. All right, we're at the halfway point. At this point, let's take a break. When we get back, we'll uh, we'll we'll cover the top four candidates in the 2020 state of the race. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. We have covered the bottom half of the bracket, so to speak. Let's move into the top half. The four candidates most likely to win the Democratic nomination. We'll start with number four. And that is Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Mayor Pete is someone, I think, who's been on a bit of a downward trajectory over the last month or so. He's faced renewed criticism after a spike in the fall. And I think those have have harmed him. And I think he's now in a place where he, he has to be considered in the top tier, clearly. But his candidacy rides on these early states. And it's not clear to me that his Iowa team has what it takes to take it home. Uh, but they, they, they need to. <laughs> uh, because if Mayor Pete doesn't finish top two in Iowa, it's very difficult to, uh, to think of a path forward for him. Now, the flip side of that is, you know, he's been able to raise a decent amount of money. He's effective politician. He has a, I think, a lot of Democratic voters who are not hyper sort of policy aware, not sort of reading, you know, political blogs every day. I think he's going to get a lot of sort of cultural support. He's going to get support from voters who think, well, wouldn't it be nice to have Mayor Pete as president? Like I, th- I think there's there's some of that, and that that can't be discounted, and so that that's his path. He finishes top two in Iowa, maybe as a top three finish in South Carolina, top three in New Hampshire, and is basically able to stay in it so he can make it to Super Tuesday and be a standard bearer, uh, be sort of the the Bernie alternative or the Bernie Warren alternative. That's what his candidacy is riding on. I think there are more likely scenarios, but is a possible scenario. Of course, I won't belabor 
the role that faith has played in Mayor Pete's campaign, but it's important, you know, just to state in the state of the race, you know, overview, uh, faith has been absolutely essential to his campaign more than any other. I think it's allowed him to get to where he is right now. I just don't think it's going to be enough to uh, to get him the nomination. All right, that's number four, Pete Buttigieg. Number three, number three for me is Elizabeth Warren and deliberated over this to be sure. But I think the Bernie standard bearer is going to be Bernie. Uh, And I think Elizabeth Warren has taken an unhelpfully, look, here's how I'll say it. If Elizabeth Warren loses, it will be because it will be because she expanded her sort of brand, her sort of political profile too thinly across sort of the democratic spectrum, progressive spectrum. She was like she 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 was too progressive on too much in a way that alienated and pushed voters to to Bernie. Um, to to Bernie, and in some cases to some of the other uh, candidates as well. If she wins, it will be because she expanded her appeal beyond economic issues in a way that outflanked Bernie. She is trying to do this through an antagonistic approach that I think she's hoping leads to her breaking through with voters who maybe didn't previously see her in this light. So, for instance, her commitment to wear a scarf, a pink scarf, celebrating Roe and Planned Parenthood at her inauguration uh, speech if she was elected president. It's a ridiculously divisive idea. It would be like President Trump saying he's going to give his speech you know, with an AK-47, uh, you know, to celebrate the NRA um, <laughs> in terms of the political sort of valence of, of that. What it does do is it's a meaningless in terms of policy. It's a symbolic gesture to show I, I'm, I'm really, we're going to kick Trump out and we're going to institute not just new policies, but a new sort of culture. We're going to put to bed not just Trump's policies, but sort of make the other half of America feel as awful as we have uh, for the last four years. (laughs) And uh, I actually don't think there's as much desire for that in the Democratic Party in a primary where you're running against other Democrats. You know, I, I worry... Personally, and once you get into a general, if that's if that's where the energy of the Democratic Party is, I'm just not sure these sorts of declarations of antagonism are as helpful in the primary context. I could be wrong. There, there is certainly an undercurrent, for sure, of anger in the Democratic Party right now and a desire for conflict. And that's what Elizabeth Warren has been doubling down on in a way that she has expanded beyond the conflict that she seeks and thinks is warranted with with big banks and financial industry, etc. And she's now sort of opened up several other fronts uh, on that. And, and again, just to recap, like if she loses, I think that will be a big reason why 
uh, if she wins, yeah, th- that will be a big reason why we're, we're just going to have to see how this plays out. But she's she's number three because I don't see the energy behind her campaign that we see behind Bernie's campaign. And I think that uh, the the attacks on her or the criticisms of her, similar to Buttigieg, have, have had an effect over, over the last month in a way that has set her standing compared to Bernie less favorable than it was three months ago. And so number three, Elizabeth Warren. Number two is Bernie Sanders. He has had the top two candidates are like the headline is how resilient they have been. And that's been one of the most counterintuitive things about this race, which is I think a lot of people took as a lesson of 2008 in particular that it was beneficial to not have a long political record and that you can, if you're a fresh face, that will make it easier for voters to gravitate to you to see themselves in you rather than if you have a record that can be picked apart and sort of you sort of have been around for a long time and people feel like they know you and take you for granted or already have an opinion about you, etc. And I think, obviously, there's a benefit in politics. To, there are pros to that. Certainly, you know, Biden in particular has been able to be attacked on his record in a way that other candidates have not. What we are seeing with Biden, and I think with Bernie as well, is the benefit of having been in public life for a long time, particularly when people feel such anxiety around the state of our politics and feel so driven in the Democratic primary to defeat, among Democratic primary voters, to defeat Donald Trump. And and that is that they feel like they know Joe Biden and they feel like they know Bernie Sanders. In the case of Bernie... It's because it's because Bernie has been sort of uniquely Bernie for so much of his time in public life in a way that 30 years ago would have disqualified him from being a presidential contender. This, to me, is the evolution of the pursuit of authenticity in our politics, which is that the American people, I think, authenticity is still a value. But what they understand is that judging authenticity by performance can be misleading. That if we judge whether a candidate is authentic by whether or not we're convinced by their performance, that could lead us astray. Maybe they're just a good performer. But with someone like Bernie, like who would perform as Bernie? <laughs> like, especially over the arc of his public career, if their goal was to be president, or if their goal was just to be liked as a national political figure, seems clear to me whether you like, uh, whether you agree or disagree with Bernie Sanders, this is an authentic guy with some core political commitments that, I think his supporters, especially his his base, you know, believes they can depend on him in a way that's unique. 
to if he is elected to office to carry through on what his political career has been about. And I think that's probably a good judgment. I think, like, I, I don't think Bernie's going to get into the White House and uh, become a different person. But Bernie's going to be Bernie. Uh, I think the other things in his favor is he's raising a ton of money online. Not in a way that comes close to matching Trump. Uh, but in the context of this Democratic primary, with the exception of Steyer and Bloomberg, Sanders is, is in terms of raising money, Sanders is ahead of the pack. And I think Sanders has an energy that, frankly, I think his voters can be counted on to turn out. Even as they trend younger, I, I think his voters can be counted on to turn out for him in interesting ways. Now, it is interesting to think about you know, what happens in, in some of these caucus states if if Bernie doesn't hit the threshold in, in some places? You know, where do his voters go? Do they automatically go to Warren? And that could be really possible when you get out of, like, Des Moines, when you get out of the sort of the major, uh, when you get out of sort of the college towns, when you get out of major urban areas, there there could be a significant contingent of, Bernie voters that that don't get to fifteen percent and then have have to make a second choice. What happens then? Do they decide to caucus in the second round? But I think Bernie's in Bernie's in a strong position right now. That said, I continue to believe that Bernie has a ceiling and his ability to to win this race. I think relies significant, especially against Biden relies on him having to run against two moderates beyond Super Tuesday. In other words, I think he needs a robust Klobuchar campaign that, that you know, won in Iowa and Biden, or he needs, you know, Biden and Buttigieg in it through Super Tuesday, and he needs Warren out. And then he has a really clear path to the nomination. But if it's Bernie, Warren, and Biden, or even Bernie, Biden especially, Bernie Buttigieg is a little a little tougher. I think Bernie's able to win voters in Ohio, uh, win, win voters in the Midwest and the Rust Belt against Buttigieg that he would lose to Biden. If it's if this is Bernie Biden when it comes on to Super Tuesday, I think that's a hard race for for Bernie, which leads me to to number one, which is uh, the vice president who had a you know a pretty rough fall, but again has proven to be resilient and is now we're starting to see consolidation take place. He is not. As I've said throughout this, not as strong a front runner as Hillary Clinton, and he has significant weaknesses. And I am not sort of discounting the fact that it's it's possible that his support you know falls out from under him, even ahead of Iowa. However, I don't think that's the likeliest thing to happen right now. I think Joe Biden has been wise to find opportunities to 
take this race directly to Donald Trump and to provide images and an example of what that contrast would look like, what it would be like to have Joe Biden as president as opposed to Donald Trump. I think that Biden has garnered some really impressive endorsements, some helpful endorsements, which lead to the idea that there's consolidation taking place. And then I think the polling is looking in Biden's favor. It looks like he's up in Iowa. Uh, South Carolina is holding exceptionally strong. He is not invincible by any means. But what that also means is, uh, you know, I don't think there's going to be this, you know, energy among this energy among Democrats, Democratic voters to sort of make it difficult for him. <laughs> you know, like because he, he's never been sort of uh, coronated, you know, I don't think there's going to be that, you know, what Hillary Clinton had to deal with in both of her campaigns, which was, you know, this this sort of this sort of pushback, this sort of desire among Democratic voters to see like more of a competition. I, I, I think people feel like Joe Biden's been, been, been uh, in, a, in a competition. So a lot can go wrong, and a lot of it can come down to just a few percentage points. You know, if if Biden comes in third place in Iowa, even if it's just out of first place by a few points, uh, th- then you know that that can weaken him. Uh, you know, going through if Biden wins Iowa, I think um, aside from a major sort of rebuke in New Hampshire that complicates things, I I think he's in a very strong position to win the nomination. Concerns, of course, are around his fundraising. And he's got a, I think his campaign is hoping that with a win in Iowa, or at least, uh, you know, I don't know which would be better for them, a win in Iowa or coming in second to Bernie in a way that Convinces Buttigieg's donors to line up behind Biden, but he he needs he needs to have an incredible first quarter of this year in fundraising to make sure that he has the team to see him through to Super Tuesday. So that's a concern. You know, I think the big thing looming over this race is how how much of his resilience has been uh, because. People haven't been tuning into the race yet. So how many of the attacks that Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and you know others made months ago will now be brought back up, you know, from from the candidates still in the race and from the media at the time when people are really tuning in in a way that makes an impact. I think there's a chance that that could happen too. It's certainly what Bernie's trying to do with uh, with his um, with his campaign's uh, attacks on uh, Biden for Iraq War, his Iraq War vote, and some other actions Biden took as as sender. And so, so, so that's that's there. Um, but I, I think Biden's done done enough to uh, to to win this thing, and now it's just about getting to votes, and that's really 
That's what we have to get to. Uh, But before we get there, there is a debate uh, on Wednesday night. Uh, And this will be sort of uh, not the last chance, but this is this is a major chance for the the most striking, you know, critiques to be made for the best cases to be made uh, by these candidates. For their for their uh, for their candidacies, uh, and so it will be interesting to see how this debate plays out. If there are new lines of attack, if anything that has been building up narratively sort of hits a peak in this debate, and then if there are, you know, some a lot of times what happens in these things is a, a candidate who has been just honing their message over the course of this entire campaign, uh, it just strikes through now that we're in crunch time in a way it hadn't before. It just sort of makes an impact in a way that it it hadn't before. Um, I could see that happening for someone like Mayor Pete. I could see that happening for someone like Senator Klobuchar. Um and, and so it's going to be a very fascinating uh, next couple of months on the Faith 2020 podcast. We're going to get back to, I think, interview-focused uh, episodes. We're going to be bringing you journalists and uh, political actors and others who uh, are up close on, on this race and trying to give you the best insight and analysis on the intersection of faith in 2020, uh, of faith and this, this, uh, this vitally important democratic nomination process, and obviously the the general election that will follow. All right, as a recap, at this point, the state of the race: Joe Biden is most likely to win the Democratic nomination, followed by Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg. Amy Klobuchar, Mike Bloomberg, Tom Steyer, and Andrew Yang. We'll see what changes in the days ahead. Excited to follow all of it with you. This is Michael Weir. You've been listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?